Okay. As promised, here is the conclusion of the lecture series on philosophy of science from ECPR in Bamberg in 2020, which I was unable to actually deliver in person on the last day of the free morning course because I had run out of time. Turns out that if you're five minutes or so late getting started every day on a 50-minute lecture, that by the end of the week that adds up to something like 25 minutes that you didn't actually have. And that's about where we are. But as I had promised, I'm currently back in my hotel room and I am recording the end of the lecture as I would have delivered it. I don't have a very nice projector set up, but what I do have is I have my computer out and I'm running the slides as if I was actually speaking in front of the large projection screen, and I don't have an audience, so I'm just going to have to imagine people nodding, smiling, occasionally laughing at my bad jokes, things along those lines. So let us imagine this situation together and kind of will it into existence. And I will talk briefly for a few minutes here about the punchline of the lecture series that I have been delivering this week, which is a punchline concerning the all-important question, now that we have sketched out these four different versions of attempts to solve the Cartesian dilemma, the dilemma of Cartesian anxiety, running through parts of the European Enlightenment, culminating or provisionally culminating in the logical positivist solution to these issues in Vienna by the members of the Vienna Circle, the fragmentation of that project into four very different things, so the neo-positivist synthesis of logical positivist approaches plus the Popperian notion of falsification, the realist notion that things in the world have causal powers which are real but undetectable essences that can be extracted through laboratory-like experimental procedures, the analyticist or pragmatist solution, which is to talk about knowledge as being through and through ideal typical, and the critical approach to knowledge, with the fourth alternative that I discussed mostly this morning, in which knowledge is rooted in an attempt to locate oneself, not just as a single individual, but in terms of one's societally induced perspective, the place from which you view what is going on in social life. So these four different versions of how one might conduct something, which I would argue is broadly social scientific, that all four of these kinds of approaches that we have been talking about this week all fit under a broad definition of science. So if you recall from the very beginning of the week when I quickly laid out a broad account of what it means to do scientific inquiry, what the conclusion of this series tells us is that though there is a broad logic of scientific inquiry, a broad umbrella of scientific inquiry, there are no specific unified, very particular logics. There is no such thing as the scientific method or the one singular scientific approach. Science names a class of knowledge-producing practices. Science names a particular set of ways that people have tried to grapple with the problem of knowledge, either by trying to solve the Cartesian problem of overcoming the mind-world gap, 
or dissolving the Cartesian framing of the problem by eliminating the mind-world gap and trying still to generate valid knowledge out of that. There's no one single way to do this. So this grand tour that we've been on this week, if nothing else, should reaffirm or reinforce for you the idea the only valid definition of science that could actually capture these different things is a very broad definition. Unless we wanted to say that one of these approaches was, was uniquely scientific and the others were not. And I think that's very, very difficult to do precisely because, as I have tried to talk about throughout the week, each of these approaches has strengths and weaknesses. Each of these approaches has claims and defenses against counterclaims from other approaches. So it's very hard to declare one of them the winner in the science fight. All right, so instead of doing that, my suggestion is what we should do is continue to operate with a very broad umbrella, a broad category of scientific modes of inquiry. And that definition of science, that very broad definition, would emphasize three things that I think are common to everything that we have talked about this week. And the first important characteristic of something we should put in the region or box called science would be systematic links between premises and conclusions. This differentiates claims that are meant to be evaluated scientifically from claims that are meant to be evaluated, so, shall we say, politically, in which political speech, right, evaluate a good piece of political speech based on the sorts of reactions that it provokes among people who listen to it, not necessarily on its logical consistency. So internal logical consistency, systematic links between premises and conclusions are one of the main characteristics of a scientific statement, which is another way of saying to call a statement scientific is to suggest that it is legitimate to criticize that statement based on its systematic links between premises and conclusions. If we regard a statement not as scientific, then it becomes inappropriate to apply those sets of standards to it. A second thing that I think is common to all the modes of knowledge production that we've been talking about this week is that a scientific statement is subject to some kind of public criticism for the sake of improvement. Now, what I mean by that, and the reason I'm avoiding a loaded word like progress here, is that some of the approaches we've talked about this week believe that enough, the correct kind of public criticism of a statement will eventually lead it to a progressively better representation of the world as it actually exists in and of itself. Other kinds of approaches do not necessarily do that, particularly monist approaches do not think that there is a certain true representation of reality on which we will eventually converge. And the approaches we've talked about this week differ in terms of how they cash out what that public means and how wide that public should be. Neopositivists, somewhat in common with analyticists, would suggest that the primary public is the community of research scientists, whereas realists and critical theorists, especially critical theorists, would suggest that the relevant public has to be much broader than simply the people who are certified as analysts who are actually engaged in scientific research, who bear badges and have credentials and so on 
and so forth. So regardless of the size of the particular public and regardless of exactly how improvement gets cashed out, I think you could say that all the approaches we've talked about this week believe that scientific statements are something other than expressions of personal or subjective commitment. If there is a commitment in a statement, in order to make it a scientific statement, you have to make the claim somehow amenable to criticism so that it could be made better. And then the third thing that is common to the various approaches that we have looked at this week is that they're all focused on producing what you might call worldly knowledge, knowledge of things in the world. Now, what these different approaches mean by things and the world differs. The way they implement those kinds of terms are different. But all of them have in common that they are attempts to produce knowledge of things that are part of the world, part of the world as it exists, and not things that are transcendent above the world. In other words, none of these approaches purport to be able to answer questions of ethical or moral value. So they all would suggest that really what we're dealing with here is the sphere of the empirical, the sphere of the actually existing. This is true even for critical realists who suggest that there are undetectable causal powers that make things do the kinds of things that they do in the combinations that they occur. But for a critical realist, those unobservable causal powers, because they are real, are part of the world. And we have something like ideal types, which are not understood to be true or false, but as useful or not useful. And that is precisely because ideal types are not understood to be things in the world, but instead ways that we apprehend the world. All right, so each of the different approaches we've talked about this week has a different sense of what the world is, but they all agree that we should orient our knowledge or our scientific knowledge toward the world and not toward, say, trying to evaluate the ultimate ethical significance of human existence or something along those lines. We have approaches in our broad panoply of knowledge that do that, things like theology, but those kinds of approaches would not fit under this broad definition of science. The broad definition of science, however, leaves lots of room for variation, and it is that variation that we've been tracking over the course of the last several days. So what I want to do here at the end is I want to actually draw together the kinds of distinctions that have been floating around and animating a lot of the discussions that I've been engaging in so far and draw them up as a nice little two-by-two two with a little bit of a division, a, system, a systematic division of approaches that we've been talking about in a way that I think is a helpful ordering that makes sense of what we've been doing. One of the dimensions that I've talked about quite a lot this week has been the distinction between mind-world dualism and mind-world monism. So theory in a dualist approach is a set of mental constructs that is compared with a non-mental world, a world that exists outside of mind. So dualism is all about theory and the world having to some way, in some way be joined through representation. Theoretical claims and the empirical claims that follow from theoretical claims are representations of what actually exists in the world. Monism, on the other hand, roots theory not in this kind of representational practice, Instead, theory is a way of ordering our practical experiences in the world. So theory comes from involvement rather than theory coming from outside of the world and representing the world. Right? So these two different kinds of directions for how we think theory is built and what we think theory actually consists of. 
The other dimension that I have spent quite a lot of time talking about this week is the distinction between phenomenalism and transfactualism. And I deliberately use unfamiliar terms here because the distinctions that we have currently operative in a lot of our everyday language for talking about this stuff are kind of misleading. Because instead of phenomenalism, what we would often say is empiricism. But empiricism would suggest, as a philosophical doctrine, that we can only really be sure of the evidence of our unaided senses. And that, I think, is a problem. So to broaden this out a little bit, instead of calling it empiricism, what I have termed it is phenomenalism. And the term phenomenalism is meant to pick up the notion that all we can know about are things that we can experience, which is to say things we experience either with the unaided senses or things that we experience with enhanced senses, using prosthetic devices for measurement and observation. Some of those prosthetic devices may be physical, so the glasses that we wear. Some of those devices may be conceptual, such as ideal types and other kinds of theoretical conceptualizations. That those are the ways in which, the the ways through which we are able to perceive and experience particular things. The counterposition, the transfactualist position, is and it's a term that's borrowed actually from Roy Bascar, the realist philosopher of science. And what Bascar suggests is that the whole way that experimental science works is by looking at something in an artificial lab and then making an assumption that that power that you've been able to disclose in the lab would actually continue to manifest itself in some way and in some degree in the open system of the real world. Which is to say that that is an assumption that things are going to continue unaided like that. There is no way to prove that assumption. That is an assumption that underpins the procedures that you use to generate knowledge. So the transfactual presumption is that it's possible to know the deeper roots and causes of experience. That it's not just knowledge stops with the things we can experience and directly measure and contact. Instead, we can know things that are deeper and give rise to the experiences that we have. For a critical realist, this is what laboratories are for, and if you don't have a laboratory, possibly transcendental reasoning. For a critical theorist or reflexive theorist, we can know the deeper roots of experience largely by reflecting on the traces that those broader phenomena leave in our experiences. So if you are a feminist and you are talking about patriarchy, patriarchy is not simply an analytical ideal type, and patriarchy is not simply a falsifiable hypothesis, but you also don't have a lab to put patriarchy in or put society in and see if you can sort of strain patriarchy and isolate it out. So instead, you know that there is patriarchy because you know the experience and you know the traces that patriarchy leaves on your own experiences and the experiences of others. By placing your eyes, as it were, by placing your knowledge-generating capacity at the place that is marginalized by a patriarchal system, you then get to know something from a different epistemic point of view. Right? You can see the operation of power in a different way. And you know you're not just making it up precisely because you know it in your own experience and can see its traces thereon. And that is how critical theory in a reflexive mode proceeds. So, two binary distinctions. 
two binary distinctions, to my mind, sounds an awful lot like a two-by-two matrix. Oh, pause to take a quick sip of coffee. My goodness, that's bad coffee, but it's still coffee. Anyhow, two-by-two matrix. And I really like two-by-two matrices as ways of organizing these kinds of conceptual issues because a two-by-two matrix gives you a certain amount of appreciable variation, but it's also not so complicated that you end up sort of not being able to reproduce it and use it and, 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 and make it actually sort of do anything. It becomes too much of a complicated matrix to keep on doing. So a two-by-two matrix is a good kind of analytical cut into these things. So the two-by-two two matrix in question, which you now see on the slide, if you have advanced to that point in the slide, the two-by-two two matrix in question puts dualism and monism on the vertical axis and phenomenalism and transfactualism up on the horizontal axis and then arranges the four methodologies that we have discussed this week accordingly in that matrix. So at the corner of Dualism Avenue and Phenomenalism Street, you have neopositivism. And the neopositivist procedure of hypothesis testing is entirely made possible by this mind-world dualism, the emphasis on measuring variables and the ability to measure the variables absolutely essential to conducting these sorts of procedures comes from the phenomenalism of neopositivism. And the emphasis on law-like generalization as a way of thinking about causality is entirely about saying that if we can isolate what is law-like in general out of this data, then we can be sure that we are actually in contact or close as we can come to being in contact with the actual world and therefore we've successfully crossed the Cartesian mind-world gap, and we're not deluding ourselves, which is the thing that a neopositivist is always concerned about, which is why neopositivist work is always about continual hypothesis testing. The only way you know your knowledge is secure is if it continues to stand up to repeated attempts to test it. So that's where that impetus comes from for neopositivism. Moving over in the box here, you move over to the right a little bit, and we move over to realism. And we discover that at the corner of dualism and transfactualism is where you find realism. So just as dualist as neopositivism is, there's still a world, it's out there, it exists in all of its mind-independent glory. But because the open system of the real world is messy, and we don't always see causality manifesting itself as sets of nomothetic generalizations, Real-world open systems hypothesis testing is not the kind of technique that a realist thinks is actually going to get you in touch with the way the world actually is. How do you do that? You get in touch with the way the world is by putting small isolated pieces of it into a laboratory. And in that laboratory, manipulating factors in the environment of the laboratory, the closed artificial world of the laboratory, to elicit the real but undetectable causal powers that underlie things. That's how you can be sure that you've successfully crossed the mind-world gap, that you've actually gotten in touch with something that really exists. And because you think that you've now gotten in touch with something that really exists, and you can validate that, you've vetted your causal power, now you can take that back out into the world with confidence. Because you know this is a real thing, you found it in the lab. You're able to utilize that to then construct explanations which will help you talk about the conditions of possibility for actual actions that might actually happen in the real world. So that is the way that realists try to solve that Cartesian problem. On the bottom row, we have our monists, 
And when we are talking about various flavors of monism, monists do not start with that kind of mind-world dualist position. So the subject is embedded in the world. There's a set of ongoing transactive flows from which these things arise, rather than a gulf between the mind and the world that somehow has to be effectively crossed. So at the intersection of monism and phenomenalism, you have this analyticist position, which I've suggested is nicely exemplified by Max Weber's approach to thinking about ideal types and ideal typification. I think what's really essential about an analyticist position is that an ideal type arises from concrete sets of involvement and helpfully solves problems that arise in the course of those involvements. So that is what analyticists say is valid knowledge. Valid knowledge is knowledge that works to solve particular problems in context. And when we're talking about social scientists, the problems in question are research problems that emerge from the practices of the research community. And we take cultural values and we build them into ideal typical instruments, and we utilize those ideal typical instruments precisely so as to resolve practical research problems. And those are the groundings. That is the grounding for knowledge. In the fourth box, monism and transfactualism, we have, we find, our reflexive theories. These are our various critical theories, which suggest that the grounding of knowledge involves locating our perspective as knowers with relation to the rest of the social arrangements that make up our society. So it's not simply about personal experience. It is about reading through personal experience to the broader positionality that you as a researcher occupy. It is possible to occupy a position that may not necessarily have been your own personal experience. You can immerse yourself in other kinds of experiences and try to gain some sense of what society looks like from that point of view. Marx, as far as we know, was never actually a dispossessed factory manual laborer but we're still able to theorize what the world looks like from the perspective of that kind of alienation of labor. So that reflexive theoretical box suggests that you don't, since you don't have to start from this kind of Cartesian problem, you're not looking to have knowledge that corresponds to things. You're trying to look from a certain point of view and a disciplined looking from that point of view. And that's what makes it science rather than simply an ethical critique, saying this is an unjust set of practices. That it very well may be, but that is not a scientific conclusion. That is an ethical conclusion. Justice not being something you can actually do scientific research on. What you can do is you can say, given that we think this is an unjust conclusion, let us view society from these kinds of perspectives and see what we get. What kind of knowledge can we generate of the society by locating ourselves in the place of those who are unjustly marginalized. That's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, and in fact what a lot of folks in that kind of reflexive critical theoretical box are interested in doing. All right, so that's the basic architecture. That's sort of making clear what the architecture has been that we've been developing over the last several days. What do we do 
with this now? What do we do with this architecture? What do we do with this plurality of ways of being scientific and ways of being social scientific that emerge from various attempts post-Descartes to solve or dissolve the Cartesian anxiety problem? What do we do with all of this stuff? Well, one thing that our little grand tour should have taught you is that there is no justification in the philosophy of science for a single uniform approach to science. Each of the four boxes that I have sketched, each of these approaches, have their defenders and their detractors. And, in fact, even old-fashioned logical positivists have some defenders. There's sort of a neo-logical positivism that seems to be coming back against current neo-positivism. So there's debates ongoing about these things. You cannot find in the philosophy of science a single uniform justification for this being science and nothing else being science, right? All of these approaches seem to have a certain amount of, of plausibility, at least. Now, one of the implications of this, I think, is that because these are different approaches, we should start by respecting those differences and not by combining them willy-nilly. Because if you just start throwing a bunch of incompatible things together into a pot and cook it up, you can call it soup all you want, but it's probably not going to taste very good. You cannot simply combine different methodologies without tacitly figuring out which one is actually going to take the lead in terms of basic things like the research or design and the logic of inquiry of your study. This is methodologies we're talking about here, not methods. There is absolutely no reason why you cannot combine methods that are based on counting things and methods that are based on reading things and methods that are based on experiencing things and talking to people, right? You cannot, there's no reason you could say that those things there cannot be combined with each other. What produces incommensurabilities and incompatibilities are not methods. What produces incommensurabilities and incompatibilities are methodologies. Because methodologies structure your study in a very different kind of way. So if I say I would like to uh, go out and view society from the perspective of a marginal position, and I would like to articulate a set of knowledge claims that comes out of that, and I want to root those in experience, in my own experience, my own reflexive self-location, okay, okay, so you're being reflexive so far. And then I want to use that information to code some variables and test some hypotheses. Okay, so what's just happened? Well, what's just happened here is you started in one place and then you subordinated the logic of your study to a neo-positivist approach. And let me be clear, that is perfectly fine if you are a neo-positivist. You have not, however, accomplished the thing you said you were setting out to accomplish, which is that you have not combined methodologies. What you have done is taken the output of one methodology and used it as an input for another methodology. That is not the same thing. You have a set of parallel studies that you are then linking together in kind of an accidental way rather than some kind of organic fusion of these things. I do not think it is possible to organically fuse radically different logics of scientific inquiry. And I think we do ourselves a disservice if we pretend that that is what we are doing or that that is even what we are capable of doing. In practice, 
even when we start to say things like, well, there must be some basic sets of standards that every scientific methodology must adhere to, every scientific study must do this or must do that, as soon as we say that, we've chosen a methodology. We have decided which of these boxes we're going to be allied with. And we've said, okay, if you don't meet those standards, you're not science. So that then takes the diversity of scientific approaches and reduces it by saying, you can't play the science game. You're not part of this. That, I think, is a huge problem. There are no single common standards for evaluation across these four different boxes. The kinds of things that make for a good ideal typical account are not the same kinds of things that make for a good realist account. These are different. They generate different kinds of knowledge and different kinds of knowing. And that difference, right, that difference is in some sense irreducible. You cannot simply wish it away, right? You cannot simply take away that difference. You cannot turn that difference into something that you could subsume under one unified set of standards. In practice, what you would actually be doing is choosing one of the existing uh, boxes, one of the existing sets, and subordinating everything else to it. And I don't think this is the most productive way to go. You certainly could, if you wanted to, launch a campaign to say only one of these boxes is science, only one of these boxes is appropriate, and that's the only one that I want to practice or permit to be practiced in my immediate environment. The difficulty with doing that as I hope to have shown over the course of the week, is you have no support for doing that in the philosophy of science. Every approach has its own philosophy of science defenders and groundings. So you cannot say this is science and that is not within this box, within any of these sorts of approaches we've talked about this week. You can't say that because you don't have any philosophy of science justification for being able to do this. So what should we do instead? My suggestion, my suggestion throughout has been that what we should do instead is we should try to clearly draw up what we think these differences actually are. And the utility of drawing up these differences is that only then can we start to have a conversation about what these different sorts of approaches to knowledge production actually do for us. And what kinds of things can you get out of a neopositivist study? What kinds of things can you get out of a realist study that you can't get out of a neopositivist study? And so on and so on. We don't have the capacity to compare the results of these different kinds of methodological approaches unless we start off with the suggestion and the proposition that there are, in fact, different methodological approaches. If we didn't start with that, if instead we said all good methodological standards have to adhere to, you know, clearly defining your variables and testing hypotheses, then you would have ruled out the possibility that any of these other sorts of approaches might produce anything valuable. And I think that is precisely what we cannot do, at least not on the basis of the philosophy of science. So we need to begin with difference and distinction in order to actually have a dialogue about the relative merits of any of these things. And why would we want to have such a debate I think we should have such a debate precisely because there is no philosophical answer to this question. 
there is no philosophically defensible alternative to a certain kind of pluralism, an irreducible pluralism, which is rigorous and engaged, but still pluralistic. There are different kinds of approaches. And those different kinds of approaches, I would argue, should be allowed to go forth in their own directions because different methodologies answer very different kinds of questions. And at the same time, different kinds of questions call for different kinds of methodologies. If you want to know something about a cross-case generalization, then you had better start utilizing some neopositivist approaches in order to figure that out because you can't do it otherwise. If you want to know how society appears from the perspective of the margin, if you want to know how power operates, you'd better start engaging in some reflexive techniques. You'd better start actually trying to self-locate your knowledge from a particular positionality in society. Different kinds of methodologies ask different kinds of questions. And given that, right, trying to actually have them go head to head so that one wins, creating a sort of cage match between these things, is probably not an especially good idea. Different methodologies cut up particular topics in their own ways and are going to produce results that are valid in their own terms all the time. And if we are ever going to have a situation in which any of these wins out over the others, it should at least be a fair fight. We should at least allow these different approaches to do what they're doing so we can see what they actually produce and then find out practically what is it that they have actually accomplished at the end of the day. You can't cut them off at the beginning. You've got to give them a chance to actually go out there and prove themselves and demonstrate that they have useful things to say. So what this imposes on us is not the task of a too hasty synthesis or a quick exclusion of various things from the tent of science. Instead, it imposes on us a task of translation, a task of saying these are sets of results that are generated through the application of an ideal type approach. How would we understand these approach or these results in different kinds of methodologies? What would other methodologies make of these things? What happens if you have a couple of different methodologies trying to address a similar sort of topic and doing very, very different things with it? How do you make sense of that? And I'm not going to give you any like firm answers for how you do this, you know, point two of this and point three of that. No, 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 I can't do that because these things still have to be worked out and they have to be worked out in practice and they have to be worked out by you as a researcher and by the community of researchers. What kinds of combinations do we find interesting? What sorts of complementarities and uh, and ways of, of reinforcing each other do these different methodologies have? We need people researchers, scholars, who are broadly literate across these different methodologies, who are capable of translating between them, not for the purpose of drowning them all under one unified heading, but for the purpose, for the purpose of comparing and contrasting and allowing these different approaches to proceed in a complementary manner in a way that is non-hostile, but still agonistic without being antagonistic, shall we say. These different sorts of approaches 
can produce different kinds of results, different kinds of findings, different kinds of knowing, different kinds of epistemic knowing. They're all in a broad tent of epistemic knowing, but different kinds of epistemic knowing. And that imposes on us this task of being able to kind of work across them and to work with them, not to unify them all into one particular blended vat of extremely cheap whiskey because you've thrown all of the individual things into it and stirred quite a lot and it sort of tastes like mush at the end of the day. Not especially appetizing. So this task of translation is best accomplished, I would argue, by the kind of provisional mapping that I've offered here, or not necessarily my mapping. I mean, there may be problems with my mapping. Who knows? We'd like to write a better one. Please, I invite you to write a better one. I offer this as something that I think is helpful with making sense out of some of the differences and similarities between these different kinds of methodological approaches within the big tent of science. And I also offer the map because I think that efforts among researchers to be internally consistent in terms of their own projects and say, this is the kind of methodology I'm adopting because it corresponds to this question, I'm going to push it as far as I can. I think those efforts to be internally consistent actually help us have better conversations. Because I'd rather have a conversation between someone who's a committed neo-positivist on the one hand and someone who's a committed critical theorist on the other hand than a more mushy kind of approach where, well, I'm going to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. What contrast am I getting out of that? No, no, no. Let's have these two different things that are afforded by efforts to be internally consistent in our research. And then let's see what sorts of results are produced. And then once we have a bunch of results, now we can have a much more expansive conversation about what we do with these different kinds of results. If we don't start with difference, we can't have that kind of diverse pluralism and that kind of defense, that kind of discussion of a diverse pluralism. As Stephen Tillman, who, as a philosopher, was the last living descendant of intellectual descendant of Wittgenstein. He actually sat in some of Wittgenstein's classes. So he was one of the very last folks who actually was taught directly by Ludwig Wittgenstein. Tolman wrote in the beginning of his marvelous book, Cosmopolis. This line, pair of sentences that I really enjoy. Right? As we approach the third millennium, our needs are different. The ways of meeting them must be correspondingly rethought. Now our concern can no longer be to guarantee the stability and uniformity of science or the state alone. Instead, it must be to provide the elbow room we need in order to protect diversity and adaptability. Particularly love that phrase, the elbow room we need in order to protect diversity and adaptability. We have real challenges in the world. None of the different scientific approaches that we have talked about this week has a complete unquestionable lock on the correct way to find the answer to those challenges. Don't we therefore owe it to ourselves and the planet as a whole to explore all of these different approaches to knowledge production in the hopes that one or some combination of them will give us the results that we need. We cannot know in advance how things are going to work out. So we should not, I think, spend time trying to cut off 
approaches at the beginning. We should let them flower and see what their fruits look like. And then, and only then, can we have a conversation about what to do with those results after we have achieved them, and we're only going to achieve those results if we start from a position of pluralism, epistemic pluralism. And it is that position which I have been displaying throughout the week, and it is that position which I would advocate to you, not as an answer to the question of science, but as what you might call a meta-methodological attitude about how we should approach this question of science. And I will stop there. <laughs>